We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. I'm here with Grandmaster Sam Shanklin, um, number four or five in the United States, depending on which day you check the FIDE ranking. Uh, I'm really thrilled to have him on. He's one of the most active and ascendant players we've had on this podcast. So, Sam, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So as we record this, I really appreciate your taking the time because I know you've got a couple things coming up. You just signed on uh, to play a Pro Chess League match tomorrow, and then you're off to Gibraltar after that, if the Internet is correct. Are those things true? Uh, they are. I will be making my Pro Chess debut for San Francisco tomorrow, and I'm flying to Gibraltar on Saturday. Okay, so we should note, by the way, this will come out um, in about a week. So when people hear this, they'll be able to, to tune in online to watch you in Gibraltar and to check the result of what happens um, in your pro chess league game. But what I wanted to ask you regarding that is how you decide which events to play in and which events not to play in. Uh, well, basically, I would consider myself uh, a student of the game at this point. Uh, I don't really make enough money to justify exclusively playing professionally, so I do some teaching and writing and whatnot to 
uh, help pay the bills, but I'm ambitious enough to hope that I can make 2700 beyond. So I basically only will play tournaments where I really think I'm getting better uh, and getting good practice and against strong players, and you know the prize fund is almost never a concern to me. So it's basically like uh, tuition, potentially, to play in an event like Gibraltar? Yeah, I mean, uh, I would rather have things been a little bit cheaper, but, you know, it's not that expensive anyway. And uh, most of the tournaments I play, I get decent conditions. It's just I don't I don't haggle much for an extra 100 bucks here and there the way I know some people do, just because that's not what really matters to me. Okay, and in terms of uh, the conditions that they offer, so we're talking about like hotel rooms or appearance fees, or what sort of what sort of discussions do you ha- have? Uh, you know, all sorts of stuff. Whether they cover your airfare, your hotel, will you get a single room or a double room, things like that. Um, you know, these are just base negotiations that you have, and I have a pretty good sense of who offers what and who can pay what and so on. But um. Yeah, it's relatively basic stuff. Yeah, I was going to ask, is there any sort of like guidebook? Like, Does someone pull you aside and say, okay, this is what you should ask for once you reach X rating, or how do you figure it out? Well, I, I definitely ask for more at higher ratings, and I, I, I'm more ambitious in what tournaments I ask to play in and stuff like that. But uh, for the most part, there's very it's very rare, for example, that I'll get invited to a tournament that I had never heard of or don't know anything about, and I... I know most tournaments roughly what they offer and you know what I should expect. Okay, and with Gibraltar coming up, I was curious when you have a tournament like that that's not a closed, so you're not it's not a list of players that you're playing, but you do know who is in the open section. Does your does your preparation change as the event gets closer or are you just studying chess generally uh, as it leads in? Well, I haven't played in a few months, which is a pretty long break for me. There was just no good tournaments between uh, October and now, essentially. But um, I will probably ease up a little bit, not spend as much time training as before just to keep energy levels high. I'll probably do a little bit more opening work and a little bit less like tactics just because I think my openings got a little bit sloppy while I was uh, you know, taking this. I guess I, I want to say taking a break, but while I was inactive... Um, so there's some stuff to work on, but, uh, I guess it's a lot more review. Uh, I sort of think of reviewing stuff you already know is not really going to help you become a better player, but it will help you perform to the best of your capability for the next event. And while for the most part, I'm, I have a long-term plan of trying to become a better player. Um, you know, it's for the next event, your goal is to just score the best you can. Okay, that's that's interesting t- to know. Um, and speaking of the last few months, you've you've written about and it's become out in the open that you were uh, part of Magnus Carlsen's uh, team for the World Championship. So how did um, that opportunity come about? I was working with you and Ludwig Hammer, Norway's number two, for quite a while. I mean, we started work, I guess, in like 2009 or 2010. And he was a natural choice for Magnus to include in the team. And at some point when I got good enough, Jan Ludwig recommended me to be chosen as well. And so then I uh, helped him out for the 2014 match. And then, uh, you know, I'm a full-time player myself, so it's not like I have the time to just work exclusively for him. And so we didn't really have much contact uh, then for a couple of years. But then Magnus was satisfied enough with my work that he had me back for 2016. Nice. And do you think that there's a certain... Um, aspect of your game that that he relies on or just more general preparation? I mean, general preparation. All of us at training camp are mainly looking at openings. I think 
He does play training games with people to try to prepare, but he's looking for people a bit stronger than me as sparring partners. Uh, but, you know, it's... I, I basically just did what I was told. Uh, I tried to analyze what I was supposed to, and, you know, I, I guess I'm doing something right because he hired me again. Yeah. Um, and were you together in one place with uh, the rest of the team? Uh, not all of them. I mean, there were there were a few of us in Kragero this time, which is a resort in Norway, that uh, we were hanging out in while we were preparing. Well, I'm sure you were pretty pleased with the result since you were uh, part of... Uh Magnus' team. Yeah, I mean, he had a much tougher time in the match than I was expecting. Uh, but And at some point, it really looked like he was going to lose, but uh, he managed to pull it out in the end. And uh, what was your overall impression of the match just as a chess fan and compatriot of the players? Well, I don't like the Berlin. I don't think anyone does, but you know that's how chess is kind of going these days. Uh, Black is just doing well. I mean, it's pretty clear to me that chess is a draw. And when you're looking at a match with the two best players in the world who have like months and months and months of time to prepare their opening for it, it's you know it becomes pretty clear that that's the direction which it's going. And so, uh, but I think that Magnus uh, messed up a bit when he he sort of lost his head after he didn't win easily. Like he was pretty level for games one and two, and then games three and four, he really could have won either of those games, and he somehow drew both. And that's when I think he started to make poor decisions and get frustrated. When I think if he had just been patient and done more of the same, you know, Karyakin was not going to hold those end games forever. And what's your opinion of the 12 game match? Um, do you think it's the, the right length these days? Yeah, I have no objections. Um, it's, uh, I guess if you had a longer match, people would feel comfortable taking more risks. But I mean, we've, we've seen a very diverse set of 12 game matches, uh, you know, and if it's if it's boring or something, or people aren't getting good games, I think it's largely just because of how the players are approaching it. I mean, for example, there were a lot of matches I thought were extremely tense and interesting and tactical. I think like Topolov Kramnik and Topolov Anand were both great, but uh, and uh, Carlson Anand, both of those matches were good, I think as well. So, you know, it's yeah, it was tough in a match like this one where there were so many draws, but. Uh, I guess sometimes that's just the nature of the players you get. Yeah, and you mentioned that chess, um, in its nature, is a draw. Um, are you, what's your opinion about the long-term future of chess and the way that do you think the format needs to be changed? Um, I do. Uh, there's any number of things that could be done. Um, if it were up to me, I would just like to uh, have World Cup-style tournaments all the time. I think that... Knockout tournaments are the best way to run basically any individual sport. Uh, the only individual sport I'm aware of that's like really popular worldwide is tennis, and I can't think of a single tennis tournament that's not knockout. And and so like uh, it, I, I don't like the idea of changing the way the pieces move or changing the starting position or anything like that. But you know if every single match has to produce a winner and a loser. Um, and if you draw a game, you just have to play another one until someone wins, and the time controls get faster and faster is fine as well. I think this would be a big help just because no one would really care if there's a bunch of draws if ultimately the, the winner still remains. And um, and also, uh, I think people will be more willing to take risks and push like very slightly better positions the way that Magnus does, positions you'd never expect your opponent to lose, but you're like, well, you know, if I'm grinding him down to exhaustion... 
nowadays, if you say I'm grinding him down to exhaustion, uh, he'll be okay. For me, it's just his next opponent's going to be the happy one. Well, right. if you're grinding him down to exhaustion, then you play him again. It's, you know, in general, I think that would be the best way to do it. But I don't think too much about this stuff because I'm a professional chess player. It's my job to train. It's not my job to try to, like, redefine the game. Makes sense. Yeah, you have limited energy, I'm sure, for politics and semantic questions. Um, so let's go, let's circle back a little bit. We have a fairly global audience, although a decent chunk of listeners from America. So I think some people are going to be pretty familiar with your backstory. Um, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I did, uh, just want to touch the broad brushstroke. So you grew up in the Bay Area and got a late start in chess. Is that, uh, accurate, um, beginnings? I played my first tournament a month before I turned 12. Okay, so that's got to be pretty rare to reach your level um, with. Yeah, well, I really liked the game, and I think, um, I mean, who knows, maybe if I had started when I was six, I would be challenging Magnus right now. To, you know, it's also possible I would have just stopped enjoying the game and quit. You, you never know what would have happened, but uh, I certainly think that I was able to learn faster as a 12-year-old than I could have as a six-year-old, so I think I made up for lost time. Or at least some of it. And once you once you got playing, um, how uh, how much time did you devote to it in your teens? Were you in, involved in other extracurriculars, or were you just pretty much focused on chess? Yeah, I was playing a lot of sports. Um, to me, chess was basically just another sport. I guess I played it more just because like ICC existed, so you could just play chess online whenever you want. When it was, you know, if I wanted to play baseball or something, I have to get like my parents to drive me to the field and things like that. So. It just because it was more accessible, I was playing chess more. But um, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't. I'd say I was probably like playing an ICC for like an hour, maybe an hour and a half a day, and I was playing tournaments like once or twice a week. Okay, and ICC is Internet Chess Club for the uninitiated. Um, so you played? Did you play baseball? I did baseball. I, I I genuinely think I would not be the chess player I am today if I didn't take a fastball to the face when I was thirteen. <laughs> So that steered you away from baseball? Well, I wouldn't say discouraged, but I became afraid of the ball. So I was the best contact hitter in the league. I didn't have that much power, but I was like, I was like never striking out. And then, you know, after that trip to the emergency room, I didn't play for like a month. And then when I, when I got back, I'd be like standing on the very, very outside edge of the batter's box, watching a perfect strike right over the center of the plate and arguing with the umpire. Wasn't that inside? So uh, pretty quickly, I became a lousy baseball player just because I realized I was human. And uh, also, that was the same year that the Giants like were up three runs in Game 6 of the World Series and then managed to lose. And Barry Bonds was my hero, and then it came out that he was using steroids. So I came, became pretty disenchanted with baseball pretty fast. And if that didn't happen, maybe I wouldn't be the chess player I am now. I, I guess we have a, a former Little League pitcher somewhere in the Bay Area to thank th- for uh, for being entertained by your chess games and chess articles and videos. Yeah, I, I don't think I thanked him at the time. <laughs> I'm sure you didn't. Any other sports besides baseball? Yeah, I was. I mean, baseball I sort of gave up. I was big into soccer for a long time. I still play recreationally whenever I can, and I played a season of lacrosse in high school. Okay, wow, pretty busy. Yeah, I like sports a lot. And you mentioned um, that you mentioned you may have quit if you started earlier. I also know that you've you've mentioned quitting a couple times in interviews over the years. So I was curious if that's something you've really considered. There was a time when I basically I did. I I was fed up with a lot of things. Um, 
I was supposed to be a grandmaster and there was a lot of sort of yellow tape technical stuff that was preventing me, even though my performances were more than enough. And I overreacted to it. I'm an emotional person in general. I was 18. I, I didn't, I didn't handle myself very well. Uh, I certainly wouldn't do that as a more mature adult now, but, um, I, I needed nine months basically to disappear. Uh, and I didn't play for a very long time and I was just going to school and thinking that this is kind of it. But, uh, I had three tournaments that I had agreed to play prior to just sort of calling it quits. And, uh, that was the U.S. Junior, the U.S. Chess League, and the Berkeley International. And so I won the U.S. Junior, qualified for the U.S. Championship, and then I led. I played board one for New England in the U.S. Chess League and led them to the best season of all time. And then in the Berkeley International, I finally made a last norm that would count. And so then I was like, okay, I mean, I, I've, only, I've only agreed to play these three. I, in theory, I could just never play again. But I was like, well, I qualified for U.S. Championship. It's good money. I'm might as well give it a try. And okay, I got third. I won 20 grand. I qualified for the World Cup where I went on and beat Peter Lecco. So, you know, chess didn't want to let me quit. <laughs> and from there, have you had moments where you've thought about quitting or was that just your Never one? Seriously. Uh, another thing was, um, it really took me, there's a lot of stuff about chess I don't like, but, uh, it, uh, spending enough time in college and like talking around normal people with normal jobs made me realize how much I really wouldn't want to do that. So you mentioned the red tape. What else about chess don't you like? The travel's pretty brutal. Um, like, you know, traveling 150 nights a year or whatever it is, it just feels like so much. Um, it's hard to maintain friendships and relationships when you're traveling that much. And, uh, and it's really tough when you get a streak of bad luck or when things aren't going well. Cause it's, it's a game where there's serious backwards mobility, uh, which is very necessary for a sport where it's, where it's a strict competition. But like, as opposed to say, you know, someone working as, I don't know, a doctor or something like they're not going to become a worse doctor overnight or something like that. I mean, it's, it's definitely tough in that regard and it can be emotionally draining, but ultimately I love the game and I don't see myself doing anything else. So in terms of emotionally draining, how, um, how much does a given tournament uh, impact your mood? I was I you mentioned uh, Yun Ludwig Kammer earlier. He's um, the predecessor, the previous guest, and I was he was he's mentioned he's going through a slump, and I was curious. I know that you you haven't had a slump of that magnitude as recently, but I was curious. Um, well, I had the worst slump of my of my life in 2016. Or 2015, excuse me. Uh, and I, I never dropped more than like 30 points off my peak, but still that felt like an ocean of, of spot that I, I had been giving up. And I definitely, I'm a very emotional guy in general. Um, I certainly control it a lot better now. Uh, but then basically the way I handled it last time was I, I just tried to like enjoy my life more. Uh, this last year was a, and so, you know, going into the beginning of 2016, I, um, you know, I, I was down to like 2630 something and, uh, I wasn't even sure if I was qualifying for the U.S. championship. Uh, but I just decided to make 2016 a really big year. And so it was, uh, I became a homeowner. I got a car, like I, lots of general, uh, so I was just trying to become a happier person. And I also, you know, spent some time like, 
I mean, it was funny. I don't think I've ever told anyone this, but I like spent like a week or something just like hanging out like in McDonald's and places like that, just seeing the kind of minimum wage workers and like seeing how lucky I am that I get to jet around the world, like in charge 10 times as much money as these like genuine hardworking people are making. And once you start becoming happier with what you have, I think it's easier to, uh, to get over disappointments and then try to push harder for more. Wow, that's really interesting. There's a photographer on Twitter who takes a lot of pictures of uh, uh, McDonald's all over the country. His name is uh, Chris Arnade. Um, so if you ever want to um, stroll down memory lane or get that same perspective without actually leaving your house, I would recommend checking out his work. It wasn't just McDonald's. It was just like all sorts of like you know low wage work, you know. And I was just and I would go to these places. And I would say like you know these are like human beings here, you know. They may or may not have made poor decisions early in life. Maybe they're just down on their luck. I mean, you know, there's they're good people working hard. And, you know, I was just thinking how much I would hate to be like them and just how lucky I was to be doing what I was doing. And then, you know, the rating difference doesn't feel like as big a deal. And in these down moments, if you think about other careers, do you think about anything in particular? Well, I got a degree in economics, and I have a pretty good eye for the stock market. So uh, I guess that would be something else I could do. I mean, I, I do some amateur trading, nothing too serious, but uh, you know, I, I make some money off that. So I think if I had to do something else, like, for example, if chess were solved tomorrow and the game just died, uh, that'd probably be where I would look. Oh, nice. I, uh, I've spent many years trading myself uh, what sort of approach do you do you use i try to keep very objective about things in general and reasonably low risk um this election year was incredibly lucrative for me just because i was very aware of uh which stocks would go up and which stocks would go down when each presidential candidate was going up and down in the polls uh and i pretty quickly realized I could count on them to say a whole bunch of stupid stuff. <laughs> and so with the polls moving a lot and the stocks moving a lot, I was pretty sure I had a good sense of what would go up and what wouldn't. Um, one example of what I, of one that I think was my best choice was um, I invested in Wells Fargo. Uh, I would basically saw thought to myself, they're kind of a disgraced company who had uh, this big scandal they dropped about 20% and stayed there, and but it seemed like they were leveling out. Uh, so I thought that essentially they're, I guess you would call a hold. They're not like anything too special, but you know you don't expect them to just like go down money. But I sort of thought to myself, if Clinton wins the election, we're probably going to see no noticeable change. They're just going to continue their current trajectory. And if Trump wins and regulations get like dialed way back, then I think they're going to go up like crazy. And that's sort of exactly what happened. So, um. You'll notice that with all of these comments I've made, you still don't know which of the presidential candidates I like, but I was fully aware of which stocks would go up with which candidate, and so I just sort of played people. I also think people were very emotional during election years and make poor decisions, and that's to uh, my financial benefit. Yeah, I have some some friends who uh, who have bet on elections over the years, and I think the market's getting mildly more efficient, but if you compare it to uh, to other endeavors, <laughs> there's still a lot of mispricing going on. Yeah. So getting getting back to to chess, you won the Sanford Fellowship. Were you still in college when you won that? Uh, yeah. So the Sanford Fellowship starts from July one one year to July one two years from then. So when I won the Sanford, I had one year left of school, and then I would have one year of no school. 
and basically I had, I had crunched the numbers and whatnot and found that I could effectively spend and use the money if while combining it with one year of school, but I could not do it with two years of school. So that's why I only applied once I was already a junior in school. I did not apply in my freshman or sophomore years. So it's a two-year term, correct? Yes. And so it ended last year? Um, it ended in 2015. Okay, yeah. Um, so have you had to make adjustments in your lifestyle once that ended? Um, yeah, I, while I was on the Stanford, I was basically not teaching at all, uh, just because I was trying to focus on playing. Um, in hindsight, they think I probably should have taught a little bit more, but um, now that the once the Stanford was over, I, I had to worry a little bit more about money. In addition, um... Uh, when I was, my parents were paying for my education, so I was sort of under their nickel at the beginning of it anyway, so I was getting a lot of money and not having very high expenses, but then once my college ended, it was time for me to be responsible for myself as an adult fully, uh, and the Sanford disappeared, I definitely had to work a bit harder to, uh, stay above water. I mean, I definitely can do it, but, um, I mean, it meant I needed to take on some more projects teaching kids or like, teaching camps or writing articles, things like that. Did you say that they think that you should be doing more teaching? No, I mean, I, I had to just to pay the bills. I mean, ah. it's, I certainly can. I mean, I if I wanted to just fill my schedule with listen, lessons every week and, you know, make 200 grand a year, I probably could, uh, but I'm not interested in that because I don't want to do it. I want to be um, working to become a better player, so... I wouldn't say I teach the absolute minimum, but I try not to teach more than like five or six hours a week. Okay. Well, I'm a big fan of your videos on chess.com, so I encourage you to keep making them. Yeah, no, I haven't made some in a while, but I think they've got a large library of videos backed up they haven't published yet, so maybe once they've churned through all that, I'll start doing some more. Yeah, the, the tournament reports, of course, are, are my favorite because you just don't get that kind of perspective um, from people who are actually competing in tournaments at that level um, very often. Um, so, in speaking of uh, competing, uh, I just wanted to talk about your career generally. Do you have any specific highlights when you reflect on what you've been able to accomplish so far? Well, two Olympic gold medals is kind of good. Uh, so, I got a gold medal on board five for the Tromso Olympiad. I got nine points out of ten. I just I played the best chess of my life and got really lucky at the same tournament, and that's a really fearsome combination. And then uh, the other one, this past uh, September, where the U.S. won the golds, uh, you know, I've played in two Olympiads, and I've got one gold medal from each of them, so that's pretty good. Uh, I've won some tournaments. I mean, this past year, there were two tournaments in a row that I won with 2,800 performances in Edmonton and Beale, so that was pretty cool. Okay. And what about when you were younger and still climbing the ranks? Was there... Does any moment stand out where you realize that you had uh, a lot of potential? When I shared first at the World Youth Under 18 in 2008. Okay, so that's already pretty far down the line, right? I mean, I guess it depends what scale we're looking at, but you are probably close to Grandmaster Strength by then, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, do you get nervous before tournaments and or games? Yeah, I get nervous before games, but once I start playing, I'm totally tunnel zoned and it stops, so... Um, and in general, I only get nervous before playing against weaker players. Interesting. And who's, uh, is Grishek the strongest player you've played? No, I've played, I've played Aronian, I've played Carwana, I've played Okaro, okay. I've played Wesley, I mean, I've, yeah. Okay. 
Um, that's that's really funny that you only get nervous for the weaker players. Um, oh, okay. I mean, what if you lose if you lose to Hikari, you know, it's no big deal. If I lose to a twenty two hundred, I'm get he's gonna be on the cover of every magazine, <laughs> and you lose nine rating points. I mean, it's just. And in general, I my belief that chess is fundamentally a draw basically tells me that I'm not gonna win if my opponent doesn't make mistakes. And you know, if if a really strong opponent doesn't make mistakes, you know, that's one thing. And you know. If, you play well, you make a draw, and you know nothing happens to your rating. But like, if a twenty-two hundred randomly plays a really good game, it's like, well, there goes your rating, and you couldn't do anything about it. So you're somewhat at their mercy. And in terms of uh, studying, you've mentioned you work with some coaches. Are you still doing that? Yeah, I, work, I have only one real coach right now, but I have some training partners, some people I do opening work with. Okay, and you've also mentioned uh, calculation exercises um, as a as a focus recently. What what does that mean? Like, what would you actually do to improve your calculation? Well, my coach will give me uh, a bunch of positions that I'm supposed to solve, and I try to do like one or two mixed sheets a day with like six problems each, and uh, well. It, it keeps you sharp, and I mean, I, I, in general, I think when you get rusty, the first thing that goes is going to be your calculation. Uh, at this point, I'm not sure how much better my calculation can get without getting better at the rest of chess as well, or just getting more practice over the board. But I think if I were to stop doing these problems or fire my coach, that I would quickly get worse. It's something you really have to maintain. I've wondered about that with with players at your level. Do you mind saying who your coach is? Is uh, Jakob Ogard? Okay, yeah, famous chess author. Yeah, he's he's the man for calculation, and I've been very satisfied with the progress I've made while I've been working with him. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, we, we've been expanding a bit to other stuff too, just because I, I think calculations are going pretty well. But again, I, I'm totally certain that if I stopped doing calculation exercises, I would get worse very fast. And do you do any work on like the the mental approach to your game? Not really. I I did three sessions with a sports psychologist once, and the first two were worth their weight in gold, in my opinion. And but I think that's basically all the knowledge I really needed, because unless you have like major psychological issues, I don't think you need more than the just some basic knowledge. So what did uh what did he or she help you with? Basically, some things like uh, that you should play every game like it's your last. That you should. That you, uh, that you, if you're not not taking any risks in and of itself is a risk. Things like this. Um, that you want to play the game you want to play. You want to play to your own strengths more than playing against your opponent's weaknesses. Things like that. And you've mentioned that time management is a strength of yours. Is that something you worked on away from the board, or do you feel like it comes naturally to you? It probably comes naturally. I used to um, just play every game in like 15 minutes, even when I was like 2200. So. A lot of people had a, some problems playing with too slow. I had problems playing too fast, and now that I've learned to actually think, I still manage to not get in time pressure. Do you give Do you have any advice to people who have, who struggle with managing their time when they play chess? Yeah. So, if you know what move you're going to make, you should just do it. Like a lot of people will, like they'll look at some sacrifice and they'll know in their heart they're going to do it, but they like want to go over it over and over and over again to make sure they're not missing something. Like, no, if you know you're going to make this move, you should not spend more time on it. That sounds like some advice that I, for one, could use. So what do you have coming up after Gibraltar? I'll be playing in this uh, round robin in California and Berlin game, which has gotten pretty strong. I'll be at the top seed, but it's going to be over 2,600 average. 
Then I have a small round robin in St. Louis, uh, which will be like 2670 average or something. They're trying to do some of these. And then right after that, U.S. championship. Okay, so you're, it sounds like you're going to be pretty busy starting next week. Yeah, I have you know, four tournaments in three months. So, And uh, did, is it grueling to go through stretches like that? Uh, I, I manage. I'm pretty fit, so I, I don't have much issue with that. Oh yeah, you mentioned um, working out. So what do you what do you do? Are you a runner or still play sports or what? Yeah, I mean, I play sports when I can, but I can't really join any leagues. I travel so much, so I'm mainly playing pickup games. Um, I am a runner. I really don't enjoy running, but it's kind of important, I think, just because there's no better aerobic exercise you can get, and it's the most time efficient way of doing so. Um, I managed to injure myself a fair amount, so you know nowadays. Uh, I'm doing exercise bike instead or elliptical, but I try to, uh, I try to run at least like maybe five times a week and then I do weights. Wow. That's a pretty healthy regimen. Yeah. And I, and I eat healthy as well. Uh, I think I, I wish I had learned earlier the importance of a, of a healthy diet, but when you're 18 and you can eat whatever you want without getting fat, you have, it's easy to develop bad habits. Well, you're still 25, right? <laughs> Yeah, but I'm definitely noticing there's things I could do both physically and mentally when I was 20 that I can't do now. You start aging a lot sooner than you want to admit. Like what can't you do? My memory is not as good. Um, it's not as easy for me to run, things like that. I'll gain weight more easily if I eat poorly. Um, you know, none of these things are disasters in any stretch. They just require you to know that they exist and deal with them appropriately. Yeah, and the trend only goes one way, unfortunately. So it's good that you're on top yeah, of it. Of course. So you've mentioned uh, 2,700 as a goal of yours. Um, do you have any uh, goals that you're willing to share beyond that? I take it one goal at a time, and 2,700 is my next goal. I mean, I guess ultimately the goal is world champion. I mean, and you know, greatest player of all time or whatever. I mean, more likely than not, I'm not going to make it because, you know, only one person ever will be the greatest player of all time. But I think if you set your goals high and you fail but you get pretty far, you'll be a happy guy. Like, if my goal is to become the world number one and I peak at world number three and stay there for a while, like, that's a very successful career. It's it's good to hear. It's I, I like hearing someone just say, this is what I want, and... um because I feel like some people might be afraid to say something like that is their goal. but Yeah, I, I think this goes back to what the sports psychologist was saying. Like, is there sort of a lot of people will sabotage themselves and not put all of their effort into something because they can't bear with the concept of total failure? I, I really did absolutely everything I could and still came up short. They think this makes them less of an athlete or less of a human being. Uh, and it's often subconscious, but I, I, I wouldn't name any names, but I definitely know a couple of players who I think have this issue or had this issue. Uh, but, you know, I, I certainly have no problem like saying, yeah, I'm, I'm throwing absolutely everything I have and any shortcoming that I have at this point is no one's fault but my own. And, um, so how, how, what's your training regimen like on a day to day basis? Like how many, how many hours are you studying and how do you break up the activities and stuff like that? So the first thing whenever I wake up in the morning is I just grab my laptop and I follow the games because I live in California, which is like not nine hours behind uh, Central Europe time. So that's a lot of the games are sort of going on right around when I wake up. So I see if there's any interesting opening ideas that have been played and uh, and stuff like that. And I try to follow along in critical positions and try to make difficult decisions. So it's, today, you know, I woke up. And right before our interview, I was just looking over Tata Steel Games. 
Yeah, it's fun when tournaments like that are going on. And then uh, after that, I'll generally make myself some breakfast uh, smoothie or something and uh, start doing some opening work. I'll do calculation work in the afternoon and then uh, you know, go to the gym, do some more opening work and call it a night. When you watch tournaments online, do you tend to watch the announcing or just uh, follow the games on your own? Just follow the games. Yeah, makes sense. Um, okay, so... I've covered most of the topics I want to topic. I did want to touch a little bit on, uh, we've talked about sports. I know you mentioned you're also into cooking. What else do you do to relax? Um, I hang out with my friends. I don't have too many friends, but the ones I do have mean a lot to me. Uh, and, you know, I, I have probably like a party at my place with like Blitz and Bughouse and like stupid games, like maybe once a month when I'm around. So that's always nice. Uh, and I try to, and I, I keep it up to date with the news in the world and uh, stuff like that. So you know, it's I watch stupid TV sometimes too. Uh, which which stupid TV? Let's hear it. I like South Park. Okay. South Park, Family Guy, that kind of thing. More like subversive TV. Yeah, you know, somewhat cynical, I suppose, but I, I think those shows are very funny. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Um, and do you spend much time like in San Francisco or Oakland, or you pretty much stay? Uh, I mean, I, I'll go to San Francisco if I'm going to like meet a friend or give a lecture or something, but I'm not usually going to go just for no reason. Okay. Um, and what about when you when you travel to tournaments? Do you try to get out? Uh, it depends on the tournament. Um, you know, Conti Monsisk or Waikanze, probably not, just because the weather is so brutal. But you know, in general, like. In a place like Beale, where it's like really sunny and it's during the middle of the summer, I, I walk around a bit a fair amount, but um, for the most part, I'm pretty focused while I'm playing. And are you ever ex- expanding your trips and going sightseeing, or do you have any plans of doing that? Usually not. Uh, sometimes if I'm playing like two tournaments with a week in between and it doesn't make sense to go home, I'll crash somewhere for a week, but I'm often tired from the first tournament and I've got to go be training for the second, so I don't have that much time to go around. In general, I mean, I'm not that interested in sightseeing in terms of, like, going to museums or, like, historical landmarks or stuff. I'm much more fascinated by just essentially pretending I live somewhere and seeing how locals do things. So, you know, um, I'm certainly much... I I think it's a much more eye-opening and rewarding experience to just, like, find a friend in a country and, like, live with them for a week or two and just tell them, look, pretend I'm not here. I'm just going to follow you along and do your thing. Cool. Well, I, one last topic I just want to talk about a little bit is the the role of computers in chess. Um, you uh, are pretty well known for having a um, lot of opening knowledge, and I'm just curious how much you use computers versus don't use computers when you're uh, studying. Well, you any opening work done without computers will just be laughed at, so you must be uh, using them pretty frequently. But, um, you know, it's... I definitely think they're hurting the game in terms of creativity, but at this point they're around and that's just something you have to make peace with. So, you know, you basically every single correspondence chess game now at the highest levels is a draw. It's like, you know, 95% draw rate and they're all just running their computers for like a really long time on every position. So if you just follow correspondence chess, like you're just basically seeing high-level computer chess at very high depths. So, you know, and you have to be following these games to prepare. So it's it's a little disheartening sometimes. But, I mean, computers are around. I'd prefer if they weren't. But 
you know, that's not something I have the power to change, so I just live with it. And one last question to try to put you on the spot. You can, um, you can include yourself or exclude if you wish, but amongst this young crop of great American chess players, uh, Nakamura and So and Jeffrey Zhang and Caruana and yourself and Ray Robson, who, who do you think is likely to achieve the greatest heights? I don't know. I think it's, it's definitely, I don't want to play victim too much or anything, but it's definitely much harder to become a great American player uh, than it is to become a great player in another country and then move here. I think Wesley has the most potential, but um, I mean, I'm fully aware that he and Fabiano did not have American chess upbringings while Hikaru, myself, Zhang, and Robson did. I think Wesley will probably get the farthest, but uh, I hope I'm wrong. I hope it's me. So what, what's the hindrance to with an American upbringing? Uh, you have to go to school. <laughs> well, you can you can drop out at some point. Uh, I I don't know. It's I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know like all the laws behind it, but I'm pretty sure that like just not going to school is illegal. Um, you can have be like uh, homeschooled or something, but I think the kind of upbringing that a lot of these chess players, a lot of like the really top players had, where like they didn't, get, where they got sort of quote unquote homeschooled, but really just studied chess all day which is very common in places like Russia and, you know, where all the best players in Europe or Asia are from. But um, that's not really going to fly in America, either socially or legally. Uh, and it's just not really part of the culture. Like, I mean, it's no fault of my own that I was not introduced to chess until I was 11. I mean, my parents did a great job trying to introduce me to all sorts of stuff. And chess is what happened to stick. It's just, you know, they didn't introduce me when I was a little kid. So, uh, you know, it's... And the tournaments in America are not nearly as good as the tournaments in Europe. That's changing rapidly. But uh, when I was growing up, that was definitely the case. And so I certainly think that Fabiano and Wesley had kind of a leg up in that regard. Yeah, that makes sense. I know that uh, Greg Shahadi wrote an article a year or two ago where he said something like seven out of the top 15 uh, amongst like the teenage top chess players were homeschooled at this point. So maybe that's part of the reason the U.S. is gaining ground. Yeah, that's becoming more popular. And then St. Louis is doing a good job getting sponsorship and getting good tournaments here and stuff like that. So, you know, we're definitely turning things around. But um, for the moment, it's pretty clear that, you know, we won the Olympiad. But if we weren't, you know, taking the best players from other countries to play for the U.S., it would be harder to do. And what's your what's your philosophical opinion about uh, our taking players from other countries obviously i don't love it but it's also obviously hard for me to be objective because i'm the one getting impacted i'm the one who might eventually get cut from a team or losing out on the u.s championship so i'm fully aware that i'm not able to give an impartial opinion the one thing i will say is uh, while i think the rules should be changed to make it tougher as long as the rules are currently in place i would never blame the players themselves for making the best decisions for their careers uh because you know, if if there's no rule against something, you can't ask someone not to do it. So, you know, I like Fabiano, I like Wesley, they're good people, I'm proud to call them my teammates, but, you know, uh, and I certainly don't hold any ill regard for them towards changing federations, uh, you know, lots of others do as well, it's how, it's how it goes, but I do think the rules are way too relaxed, and if you compare them to other sports, it's, it's definitely that's the case. Well, I don't think I have any more questions. If uh, people want to get in touch with you, uh if you would like them to, how how would they do that? Uh, there's a contact form on my website. I don't it, that goes to my email. I just don't like giving out my email publicly. But uh, if you use the contact form of my website, that will definitely get to me.
Okay. Well, Sam, I really appreciate you doing this. I think the, the listeners are, are really going to enjoy it. It's nice to get the perspective of someone who's really in the trenches right now working every day to get better. Um, I, I wish you luck in uh, Gibraltar and your other events this year. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Perpetual Chess. To hear more episodes, give feedback, or suggest guests, go to perpetualchesspod.com. If you like the show, please help me out by telling your friends and giving me a high rating on iTunes. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.